Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Hope you're tired of the rain. Yeah, all right, well, I am. We're going to do a scripture reading today from Corinthians. Let's see. This is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's God's word. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. All right, so same spot, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, back to Corinth. Ancient Corinth, as you've been reading through this and as you've been listening to sermons and hopefully reading Corinthians some on your own too, you're noticing problems in Corinth. And you're noticing that the world's way of thinking was seeping into this church. And we've been discussing the issue of spiritual maturity, what it means to be spiritually mature, what it means to be a healthy Christian, to use that term, which we're kind of used to nowadays. And what does wisdom look like? What should it look like? These are all issues that Paul has been raising with the Corinthians, because in that culture, wisdom was a big deal to be wise. And so Paul has been addressing them and dealing with the problems of factionalism and strife and the exaltation of human leaders. And he's been showing the seriousness of that particular sin. And several weeks ago, I think I asked, you know, at the start of the new year, maybe something you've thought about growing in, whether personally Um, whether as a Christian, kind of what one thing might you need to grow in or deal with in your life with the help of God's Spirit. And then I kind of wondered, huh, I wonder how many people thought, hmm, I'm kind of a factional person. I'm a person that tends to exalt human leaders. And that may or may not be something that, that you struggle with, but our culture does, and it's very likely that we might too. And so to notice that as a serious problem and as a problem that God cares about remedying in our hearts. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at a couple things 
If I titled the message, we're going to use some V's, all right? V's don't get a lot of press, so we're going to use some V's. The violations, values, and vision of healthy Christianity. Or you could say the violations, values, and vision of mature Christianity or Christian wisdom, however you want to phrase that. But that's what we're going to look at today in our text. And what I want to do is continue using this imagery of building. You know, Paul's been using several illustrations in this passage. Remember, he's been talking about Christians and the Christian community as a garden. And there are sowers and God is the one who gives the growth. And it's God's garden. God's the grower and God's the gardener. And he's also been using this imagery of building. You are God's building. You were God's building, God's temple, the very sacred space where God dwells. That is the high view, unbelievably high view of what a church, of what the people of God is, the dwelling place of God. And so we're just going to kind of continue that building imagery. And I want to kind of use this idea of the building inspector. Again, buildings are on our mind not only because we're right here and Paul is talking about it in the Bible, but buildings are on our mind because of all of the earthquakes we've been dealing with. And foundations are on our minds and our houses and cracks and looking around this building. Those things are on our mind more now than they probably usually are. So I think there's something especially relevant about the fact that God has us right here, right now, dealing with this. And we learned how God is the building inspector. That it's not, yes, we should be a people that test everything we hear from this pulpit and me or Bob or anyone else that everything we hear on our favorite Christian station or podcast or whatever, we should always test it, but we should remember that we are not the ultimate building inspector and one day God will test the workers. And some might burn up and be shown as worthless and valueless. Still might be saved, but get burnt up. And that on the day of Jesus Christ, on the final day, the work will be tested and inspected of whether it is rewardable or not. And so I want to just kind of continue that image of God as a building inspector. And what we see in verse 18... So look at that. We're going to look at the first sentence first. And I want us to kind of add this idea of building code violation. Okay? The inspector's going around town. And one of the violations is self-deception. Self-deception. So the first sentence, let no one deceive himself. Obviously, Paul's concerned there might actually be some people in the Christian community that are prone to self-deception kind of like me, and kind of like you, in the plural, y'all, like we learned, kind of like y'all, we can be prone to self-deception. And you know who you lie, who lies the most to you, the one who lies the most to you is yourself. We believe a lot of lies. And on a daily basis, we do. And that's normal. I mean, even secular Thinkers, Nobel Prize winners. There's one named Daniel Kahneman who's done a ton of research on psychology. And I was looking at an interview of his. I forget when he won the Nobel Prize. It was a while back. Also of economics. 
And he was, and, he, and there was an interview in the Guardian, and they were kind of recapping what he thinks. And this is what the reporter said. What's fascinating is that Kahneman's work explicitly swims against the current of human thought. Not even he believes that the various flaws that bedevil decision-making can be successfully corrected. The most damaging of these is overconfidence. The most damaging thing with people, overconfidence. The kind of optimism that leads governments to believe that wars are quickly winnable and capital projects will come in on budget despite statistics predicting exactly the opposite. It is the bias, he says, he would most like to eliminate if he had a magic wand. But it is, and then he's quoting Kahneman, it is built so deeply into the structure of the mind that you couldn't change it without changing many other things. Overconfidence. Self-deception. A normal human problem. And of course, the Bible goes even deeper than that. In Jeremiah 17.9, that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. Desperately wicked. And so what the scriptures say is that the human heart is deceitful and is wicked. That follow your heart is a bad idea. And in fact, if treated in an ultimate way, an utterly sinful idea. And we know that that's what we're born into in the human condition with the fall of Adam. That every human being is born prone to self-deception and we have deceitful hearts. It's part of being a sinner. It's not just that we make bad choices, it's that we are sinners who make bad choices. And we know that when God comes and He saves us and He changes our hearts, even Christians can still be prone to self-deception. We see that in the New Testament. We see it right here. Paul can call these people the dwelling place of God and we see all kinds of sinful stuff happening with these people. He can call them saints and you can go, this does not look like a saint. But he calls them that. He says, this is actually who you are. So live like it. Become who you are. We see it with Paul and Peter. Paul writes parts of the New Testament. Peter writes parts of the New Testament. What happens in Galatia? Paul confronts Peter who compromises the gospel. He confronts them in front of everybody. He says, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're kind of moving aside to the Jewish side of the table to get away from the Gentiles because you're afraid of offending them. And actually, you're showing that you're trying to justify yourself by works. And so he rebukes them. So Christians, us, we can be prone to self-deception. So Paul is saying, hey, let no one deceive himself. Don't do that. Be alert to it. Be alert to it in your own heart, to use Kahneman's language. The biases that we have, we all have them, even as we read this book, and say, okay, Father, God, I need help. Help me not to be self-deceived. So, one of the violations that can happen in the building is self-deception. We have to watch out for it. In verses 18b to 19a, we see another building code violation. And I want to call this the violation of living by a false story. Living by a false story. Let's look at that. 
The next sentence. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, grab those three words in your head, in this age. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So that phrase, in this age. Hey, if any of you out there in Corinth think you're pretty wise in the age and the way the culture of the time is, Paul uses that phrase not just to speak to their current environment and the situations that arise, but it's a whole way of thinking. Paul speaks of in in other passages, the way that his mind works, his worldview of the Bible, of the way that God has created the world, is that there is this age and then there is the age to come. Okay? There's this age, this fallen world, this fallen way of thinking. In, In Galatians, he calls it that God has rescued you from this present evil age. And that there's going to be an age to come where there's a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And that right now, the resurrection has happened, Jesus is alive, so the age to come is broken to the present age and now we live in an overlapping of ages where the age to come is coming into the now. But he's saying, do not think according to this age, this evil age. And there's all kinds of expressions of what the evil age is. And so then, some of the this age thinking, then at that time, was things like polytheism. Many gods, we talked about that. Many temples on the streets. Many areas of pagan worship. Even ways in which the emperor himself was one of the many gods, where you would owe him allegiance and worship. And so that's that evil, this age way of thinking then. Stoicism would have been another. The wisdom of Stoicism. Philosophers, that obviously would have been happening some in Corinth. And the idea that wisdom is kind of detaching from all of those things and going into yourself and kind of keeping the chaotic world out and to be wise is to kind of remove yourself from all that. And that you can kind of own all things in a sense by kind of removing yourself from them and to be wise in and of yourself. Self-sufficiency. And so that's some of that of this age thinking then. We also have this age thinking now that may not be some of those same things. Actually, there's a huge rise of Stoicism right now. Um, but secularism, the idea that you completely separate religion from everything else, the secular state or secular science, that science is completely detached from God or psychology or therapy, or health, politics, all those kinds of things, kind of detaching it to where they kind of become an end unto themselves. And the big one, self. The follow your heart. The just do it. The be whoever you think you can be. Follow all your desires. The self is a This is a now way of thinking about this evil age. That that whole frame of reference, that whole way of thinking is a part of the evil age. I might have read this before, but one particular writer from Duke University talks about how we need to unlearn a story. So this coming back to this idea of One violation is that you live by a false story. 
You live in this age rather than the age to come. And he talks about unlearning the story of the autonomous individual. That's a fancy word. That just means that you are autonomous by yourself and yourself dictates everything. You're kind of a law unto yourself. And that the story of everything that the culture wants us to believe right now is that it's all about me. And for you, it's all about you. And then for the other you over there, it's all about that you, that self. And this is what he says. Everything is finally drawn into the self that I take myself to be. Whatever is not of myself is subject to myself. I'm the ruler not only of myself, but of all things in relation to myself, which is to say that I have become God. The sovereignty that is proper to God is repositioned within the individual human. I am the God of my life. I am self-sufficient. I decide who I am. Nothing can intrude on my freedom to be exactly the self-ruled, self-sufficient, self-unto-itself. This is idolatry of the most basic kind. The inversion of the imago. That's just the word for the, the image of God. No longer does God image himself in me. I have taken God's image and turned myself into God. I am the God who images myself in the world. And he says that's the story that we have to unlearn. It's not always used in that kind of language But that's what we live and breathe in every Disney movie and every marketing advertisement and every issue we're dealing with right now is this idea that the self is God. No other autonomy will happen. Nobody will tell me what to do. I am my own authority. And the great sin is to tell somebody that that's not the case. So, that's a this age thinking that is living by a false story. And he's calling all of us to say, don't believe it. There is an evil present age right now that we still live in. There's all kinds of expressions. This is one of the expressions right now. Don't be wise in the world according to those standards. And so that's what he's saying. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, wise like that, become a fool. Let him become a fool, that he may become wise, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God, is ridiculous, is futile, is foolishness. And so, this is when we get another V. We need a new vision. We need new blueprints to use the building imagery. We need a reverse wisdom. The building inspector comes, he says the problem, but he also says, hey, Got a blueprint for you. You need a new vision. It's not just stop doing all of these things. Right? That doesn't always help us. There's that Bob Newhart sketch where the person comes into, I think it's an SNL sketch, the person comes into the therapist's office and she's talking about how she's afraid of being caught in a black or in a box and suffocating to death or something like that. And he just yells, stop it! And then he, she says, well, no, but then I have this, this, stop it, this, this, and nothing. He just keeps yelling, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. As if all we need to hear is stop it. You and I all know that that does not always work. We need a replacement. We need a better vision. And so Christianity is not just saying stop it. Stop it with exalting yourself all of the time. It is saying that, but it's giving you a new vision. Attach it with something greater, something bigger. And so, the blueprint is you need a reversal of wisdom. That there is an inverse relationship between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world. That's what he's saying. 
The wisdom of the world is folly with God. Become a fool that you may become wise. And that's pretty much all that's been happening in chapters 1, 2, and 3. When he's saying the wisdom of the world will lead to conflict. The wisdom of God is the cross. The wisdom of the world is power through conflict. The wisdom of God is power through weakness. One side will look completely foolish to the other side. There's an inverse relationship. You need to see that. You need to believe that. We need to adopt a new way of looking at the world. We need to believe a new story. And that is the story that is told in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We've got to really believe that story and critique every other story with that one. But not just critique it. Believe it as the good news, the joyful tidings, the news that's for the whole world to rescue it. He also gives us another set of blueprints, another new vision in verses 19b to 20. So look at the end of 19. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So what does Paul do? What's his supporting statements? His supporting statements is for it is written. I'm not just saying this to you, Corinthians. For it is written, God has said this. This is God's word. And he goes back, which at his time, they didn't have the New Testament then, he's actually writing it. But, that the, um, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, he's appealing to that as the authority. So he's saying you need another blueprint. You need the vision of the Scriptures to saturate your mind. And so he quotes Job 5.13 and he quotes Psalm 94.11. What's kind of interesting is where does he go for wisdom? He goes to the wisdom literature. He goes to Job. He goes to Psalms. And he says the, the values of God are different than the values of the world. And in Job, he actually quotes Eli, Eliphaz. Okay? He quotes Eliphaz in Job 5.13. And he's kind of going on a string of the different ways in which God has a reversal of values than that of the world and the difference between rich and poor and how God can exalt one over the other and how the rich sometimes can power can be powerful and oppressive. But God can reverse that and exalt the poor. But what's interesting is that Eliphaz is not always spoken of rightly. Job's friends were a problem. But he's using the friend that sometimes was a problem as actually speaking the truth. And I think that's really interesting in this context as we think about factions. You can actually learn from people you disagree with. And one of the problems of our culture is we just don't want to be on like the winning side or the this side. I remember one time I quoted something on Facebook and somebody rebuked me because that guy did one thing or the other thing. And what you need to remember is that we can learn from people we disagree with. Paul just did that. He said, it is written and I'm speaking out of the mouth of one of Job's friends. Okay? So we need to remember that that, that helps us not be factional. But ultimately, we need to appeal to the Scriptures with the things we believe and the wisdom that we follow. So his support is the Bible. In Psalm 94, 
It's a picture of God's judgment and vengeance against the oppressors and the wicked and the kind of the idea of your vengeance is God's, but we're kind of waiting. It's taking a long time. When's judgment coming? All this oppression is happening. What's going on? And he quotes that psalm to show that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The idea there in the Hebrew back in Psalms was actually the same word that's used in the in Ecclesiastes. It's the idea of Hebel, I think is how you say it. It's breath. It's futile. It's uselessness. It's just a vapor. And so he's showing that the values of God are different than the values of this world. And that you need a new vision. You need to look at the blueprint that he has. He goes on. Noting another building code violation. Boasting in human leaders. He's looking around the community, inspecting, and going, eh, you're prone to just really exalting men and exalting human leaders. And Christian ones. And we're talking about Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. I mean, the, the big ones. But you're making a bunch of factions and you're splitting all of this and you're taking your main identity from them. And so he's giving them an, an, another actionable item, kind of another stop it. Don't boast in men. Stop doing that. And so one of the clearest ways we can evidence worldly foolishness is by boasting in human leaders. Even Christian ones. That again is the issue here. But again, in our culture, the amount of boasting in particular leaders is striking of which side of the fence you're going to be on and which one you're going to follow. And then you kind of break up in all these different teams and you kind of look down your noses at the opposite side. And that is, I mean, that is the air that we breathe. We kind of pick our teams and our sides in all kinds of different areas. You know, we follow Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, follow Anthony Fauci, Follow CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Go down the list. You kind of pick your team and then you kind of can silence everybody else because you only stick with your side. And then we can do that in the church. Every time there's an issue, you just go to the one author. And that's just all you grab. It's the one guy all the time. And when we can boast and we can make our, our boasting in the wrong thing, we should take value and truth like we just learned from Eliphaz wherever we find it. But we got to be careful not to indulge in strife and factionalism. He's saying, be careful to hinge yourself on men. One, they will disappoint and they will also um, fail. So do not boast in human leaders. And I love this because he gets into the why. The why. One of the whys is because you should celebrate one guy. It's kind of thinking of this in terms of kind of another little rhyme. You know, what we do is we celebrate one guy and we give everyone else the side eye. That's what we kind of do. Right? But we are made to celebrate one guy. And the one guy is the God man. Jesus Christ, the one who will not fail. And so we need a new vision. 
the vision of identity in Christ. Not just the stop it is going to help you stop it. Not just the violation, you've got to fix it. How do we remedy the violation? We've got to have the blueprint of identity in Christ. And I was just amazed by the sweepingness of this passage. It's very similar to kind of the Romans 8 passage of that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Trying to remind Christians that they are more than conquerors and nothing, not the worst thing, will ever separate you from the love of God. And he kind of just goes through and ticks off all of the big things in life. And he does the same thing here. Saying the, the, the remedy for that kind of attitude, the remedy for your strife, your jealousies, your factionalisms, your boasting in men, is to actually believe this, to get this new vision. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Christian. Redwood Christian Fellowship. All things are yours. You go, nah, no. <laughs> I can think of a lot of things that are not mine right now. Okay? But, he's saying everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's saying all of these Christian guys that you're so into, dividing up over, they're all yours anyway. Everything is yours. They actually serve the community. They're not just to be exalted. They serve you. You don't serve them. And what we can do is it's like rejoicing, let's say you inherit a big estate, okay? Inherit a house or you inherit all the money or all the money in the trust or you got this big estate and you're sitting just boasting in the garage. You're just exploring the garage and you're just amazed at all the tools in the garage. And I mean, you're thrilled, but that's your garage. There's nothing else. But actually, you got the whole estate. You got the whole thing. And you're sitting just focused on the garage in the building, So he's saying, don't do that. This is ridiculous. Everything is yours. And then he goes through these powers and these tyrannies that affect everybody. And he just kind of knocks each one of them down. The leaders and how leaders sometimes can serve as a kind of power that you must have allegiance to. I mean, think about, again, just world history and how one leader and the following of one leader can cause some major pain and suffering. And so the leaders are yours. Or you have the world, you know, the hustle and bustle, the universe, so to speak. All that you have in physical life. You have death which, of course, is the great enemy, the capital P power that nobody can defeat, that all the podcasts right now want to try to figure out ways to get healthy and find a way around death. It's not going to happen. We are limited creatures. But it has happened in the person of Jesus Christ because he conquered it and he defeated it. So Paul is just saying, hey, all these things that kind of master you, that actually they can serve you. 
You actually possess all of those things that you're grasping for. You keep grasping for the present and all this time that all of us try to figure out, oh, we've got to be mindful and we've got to be in the present and in the moment. Well, the moment and the present is going to slip away. But we can know that that can actually serve us. We can be free because we have a sovereign God and a sovereign King over the present who's given it as a gift. And death, though it's the enemy, and the fear of that, 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 Paul, that, um, that Hebrews says enslaves everybody without exception, is enslaved to the fear of death. And we try to avoid it as much as we can. But that itself will serve you in the sense of, not that it's not an enemy, but in the sense that it's been conquered and one day you will live in a new heavens and a new earth, never to die again with eternal life when you trust Jesus Christ. And he goes through the future, the fear of it, the power of it. Some of us can be held by just that fear and this great power of the future. What's going to happen? What kind of disease am I going to get? What's going to happen in my family or with my kids or all those fears, the, the unknown? He's saying, it's all yours. You know which story you're in? You're in God's story. You're in Christ's story. One day there will be a new heavens and new earth and you will inherit everything. You will sit on the very throne with Christ, the ruler and the king of the entire world and you're going to get so hung up on all of each of these things. He's saying, don't fear. It's that sweeping, everything is yours. When you don't feel like it, believe it. It's still yours. Why? Because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's why. And so we don't have to stoically detach from those things as if we kind of live in the prison of ourselves We can attach to Christ and to God and then live in the freedom in these particular areas. The freedom to walk in these and live in this world of leaders and world and life and death and present and future because we are attached to the Maker, to the Savior, to the King, to the Giver of it all and to the Conqueror. And I was kind of thinking some of this can kind of sound a little bit like law with building inspectors and, and stop-its. Well, there's not law. There's gospel all over this and what's given. That's the vision. It's not just to walk out and stop it. It's to walk out and believe this and believe that the building inspector doesn't red tag you and say, you go fix it. You fix all these problems in yourself. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just red, he, he does red tag you. But he's the Savior. He enters into the building. He gives himself for the building. He gives the blueprints. And so you can be free. You can trust him. It's going to be hard, but you can trust him. You are Christ's. Christ is God's. He gave himself for you. His body, his blood. And so we can believe that. We can take that new vision and not get hung up on human leaders. Give me a break. They're going to fail you. We can trust in Christ. We don't have to be factional and divisive, nitpicky all the time. We can trust in Christ. You are God's. You are Christ's. We don't have to be afraid of that list. And we're going to believe it by actually taking it into our bodies. 
the, the body and blood, the bread and the wine as an act of faith, an act of protest against all these things, and that that's what we believe. You are Christ. Christ is God's. Let's eat that together and believe it. Amen. Let's let's sing and then come on up and come on up and eat.
Same book of the Bible, talking to the same people. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. By doing what we just did, we proclaim the wisdom of God. If some people walked in off the street and just saw that, that's kind of weird. You're drinking this little thing and you're eating this bread. It's weird. But you know what? It's the story of the world. This is the one we believe. And we all do it together because we are all under King Jesus. And so let's attach ourselves to that story and believe that this week and the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.
day.